Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're cruising through the highways of Minnesota this week. About an hour south of Minneapolis, we find ourselves in the city of Janesville, a quiet, picturesque little community of a few thousand people, a perfect slice of Midwestern small-town America. But as we travel through the streets of Janesville, you might want to keep an eye on the windows of the houses we pass. Attic windows in particular. There's one house that locals, and those in the know, can't help but send an uneasy glance up at. An attic window that now usually stands empty. But the presence of its eerie occupant, even when missing, still weighs heavy on the home. Known as the Janesville Doll, or the Janesville Baby, for more than fifty years, it stared down at passers-by through the uppermost window of the home. A large doll, about the size of a young boy, standing upright, or hanging, in the attic window. Its smooth, pale porcelain features gazing out at the activity in the street below. It's the sort of thing that starts out as only mildly unsettling, but for those who passed by day after day, Small changes gave their uneasiness a whole new life. Sometimes the doll would change positions, a subtle alteration in the direction it was facing, or the way it stood in the window. Other times it would seem to shift in the window as you watched, like it was trying to get a better view. Sometimes its expression would change, too, from impassive to sad, or even angry. It's never clear what he wants, or even why he's there, but the heaviness of his gaze is enough to make anyone uneasy. The stories behind his existence are varying levels of sad and horrifying. The simplest begins with a tragic death. The young daughter of the owner was killed in a horrific accident, or murdered, depending on who you ask, 
Deep in the throes of mourning, the owner had the doll made in memoriam of the child, a surrogate to help ease their suffering. It was placed in the window where the doll could look out on the world their child could no longer experience, a memorial for the soul of their lost little one. Another version, another version tells of a young single mother. Living alone in the house, the mother and her child were attacked by an evil spirit, a demon. They did everything they could to ward off the evil entity, finally calling in an exorcist to help rid them of the demon. The priest they brought in, though, was out of his league. In a small town like that, there's not much opportunity for practicing your exorcism skills, after all. While he managed to separate the demon from the little girl, despite his best efforts, it cost the girl her life. But in a last-ditch attempt to save herself from utter heartbreak and loneliness, the mother was able to coax the spirit of the girl into the doll. The doll was then placed in the attic, where it would have the best view of life going on in the streets below, and where the mother could visit her daughter often. The spirit of the girl continued to reside in the doll and haunt the home. She's the reason, the story goes, that the doll moves, rearranging herself to better observe the living as they pass by. A third tale tells of a young woman who was neglected by her parents and universally despised by the town folk and other children. There's no telling what she did to earn such hatred from everyone, or at least not that I was able to find. But in a fit of despair, after being locked in the attic by her parents, she hung herself in front of the window. Her body swung there for several days, with no one saying a word. Finally, after discovering the corpse of their daughter, the parents realized the terrible role they had played in their own daughter's death. They removed her body and replaced it with the doll, allowing it to continue to swing in the window in her place, as a reminder of the terrible toll cruel attitudes can take and a plea for people to be kinder to one another. Yet another tale casts a darker shadow still. The doll, this version says, isn't host to the spirit of an innocent girl, but to a demon itself. An evil entity, lacking its own corporeal form, entered into the doll at some point, seeking an anchor in our physical reality. But while it's trapped in the body of cloth and porcelain, it longs to be free, to throw off the shackles of its inanimate host and wreak havoc by invading the bodies of the living. That's part of the reason there's such a strong pull to stare up at the doll, an evil influence drawing your gaze, daring you to make eye contact, to stare deeply into its glassy eyes and lose yourself there, to give up on the connection between your mind and body, to be possessed and enslaved by the demon trapped within. There are certain times of day when the demon's power grows, too. Some people have claimed to see the doll walking, or even running, back and forth in the attic. The fast, unnatural patter of its porcelain feet stirring up dust as it giggles in an unearthly mimicry of a gleeful child. More terrifying still, some claim he's climbed down from the attic to chase them through darkened midnight streets. While the actual origin and purpose of the doll isn't likely anything so nefarious, it's plenty mysterious. The doll last belonged to a man named Ward Went, an antique collector who lived in the house until his death in 2012. Known by other Janesville residents as very friendly and kind, Whenever Went was asked about the creepy doll by friends or neighbors, he was evasive, wasn't willing to discuss it and change the subject. Nothing strange or tragic to see here. 
Like so many legends, though, the truth died along with its owner. Except it didn't. Not entirely. In 1976, when Janesville created a time capsule to commemorate their centennial, Wendt made a very peculiar addition to the metal capsule. A small, folded piece of paper. The secret, he later said, behind the doll. Problem is, the capsule isn't due to be opened for 200 years from its burial date, so unless you plan on sticking around until 2176, we won't be finding out the truth in our lifetimes. The doll was eventually moved to the local public library, where it was given a replica window to look out of. Thoughtful. Although some of the reports I've read say that it's since vanished from there as well, and has been spotted from time to time back in its old home. I can't verify, but if you're from Janesville, or you've been to visit, I'd be so curious to hear if he's still hanging around. I hope you'll drop me a line. So, whether or not it's simply a curious antique placed in the attic to spark the imagination of those who pass by, or something far more tragic, sinister, or supernatural, there's one thing for sure. Everyone prefers a room with a view. Now, let's hear some fiction. Our first story for the evening is a classic from Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer, poet, critic, and editor, best known for evocative short stories and poems that captured the imagination and interest of readers around the world. His imaginative storytelling and tales of mystery and horror gave birth to the modern detective story. Many of Poe's works, including The Telltale Heart and The Fall of the House of Usher, became literary classics. Some aspects of Poe's life, like his literature, are shrouded in mystery, and the lines between fact and fiction have been blurred substantially since his death. Children of the Night, join me for Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, first published in 1842. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men, and the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the Prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. 
It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances, but in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment, also, that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause, momentarily, in their performance, to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce seized their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers, upon occasion of this great fete, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, 
and these, the dreams, writhe in and about taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And, anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears, who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went warringly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-heroded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with a scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but, in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, Maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, 
rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and, seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay, and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. That was Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, as read by T.F. Ahmad. T.F. Ahmad is a writer and narrator from Chicago. His fiction has been published in Dark Futures and Soiled Magazine. He now podcasts his own strange fiction at The Night Bulletin. Search for it on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. You can also follow him on Instagram at The Night Bulletin. Thank you, TF. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story comes from Lucas Peterson. Lucas Peterson is the author of nine novels and many short stories. His most recent novel, Cryptid for Six, Arctic Snare, can be found on Amazon, along with his other titles. Also, keep an eye out for his latest coming soon, Clint Clusterfuck. It's full of clusterfuckery. He lives in Iowa with his family, and they're pretty sure their cat is an alien spy. Listen with me. Children of the Night, to Lucas Peterson's Under the Porch, a Tales to Terrify original. Life plucks away at you like a child, sitting in the grass on a warm, sunny day. 
in yanking the petals out of a daisy. Love me, love me not. And the plucking never ends. The child only grows more obsessed. Eventually, though, we all run out of petals. So, when Christy finds the skeleton under her porch, she doesn't tell anyone. Instead, she goes back into the house and sits in her recliner. Her gaze slips over the pictures on the far wall. Pictures of happier times. Of a life full of bright petals. Before they were all plucked out. Pictures of her wife. Pictures of their kids. Ghosts of the past still haunting her. Finally, she gets up, walks to the sliding glass door, and steps onto the porch. A rogue autumn breeze kisses her skin with the promise of ice on its lips. Dead leaves scuttle into the backyard. Just more that she needs to rake up. It was while she cleaned the leaves out from under the porch when she found the skeleton. A human skeleton, all curled up close to the foundation. Her gaze fixes on the horizon beyond the yard. Late afternoon, the sun a glowing crescent just above the treetops. Everything holds sway in purple-gold light. Shadows grow long and dark. Something clacks under the porch. Christy blinks, heart stuttering. She looks down, trying to see between the thin gaps of the wooden planks. It's no use, though. Too dark. A shiver passes through her like dozens of tiny black spiders, scuttling under the skin. She waits, but the sound doesn't happen again. The sun dips behind the trees, casting darkness over her small section of the world. A house isn't a home without family. It's a tomb, a cold, hollow crypt, where one either slips onto madness or dies. Alone. Christy sits at the kitchen table eating macaroni and cheese but not really tasting it. Flavor, like everything else, is nothing more than a ghost now. Still, mac and cheese was little Fern's favorite. Tomorrow, it will be Connor's favorite, cheese pizza. Such is how she lives her days, over and over. Each day a different meal, though the same as the last. She saves the weekends for Mora, however, her beloved wife. Pot roast and potatoes. Sometime later, she finds herself wandering the house. A thing that has become more ritual than observance. She lingers in the doorways of her children's rooms, breathing in the sense of old socks, mild body odor and the resonance of life. Smells now going stale. Soon, there will be nothing left but rooms filled with belongings that no longer belong to anyone. The very essence of her children evaporated into thin air. Eventually, there would be nothing left but stagnant odors and dull objects in an otherwise vacant room. Two years. The time for mourning should have passed. And yet... And yet... She moves on, eventually finding herself in her bedroom. No. Their bedroom. 
Christy sits on Amora's side of the bed nearest the window. Her fingers brush along her beloved's pillow, and when she lifts her hand away, a strand of black hair clings to her fingers. She gasps. Her heart gives a deep thud. In the somber light cast by the bedside lamp, Christy gently weaves the strand between her fingers. Tears burn, blurring her vision. Her throat works against a sob. Lips twist down and quiver. Amora's hair was black. Hands quaking, she returns the strand to the pillow. Christy wiped the tears from her cheeks, stood and hurried out of the room. Two years. Her mom says she should be over it by now. Two years. Her friend Jake says she needs to find a hobby. Learn to play the guitar? She stumbles down the hall to the stairs, wheezing. Her chest clamps up. Something like a wad of bread lodges in her throat. By the time she reaches the bottom, there's the ungodly familiar sensation of steel bands cinching around her chest. She staggers into the kitchen, trying to breathe. For a sickening moment, she can't find her inhaler. She searches the countertops, the drawers. Only a thin trickle of air makes it to her lungs while she tears apart the kitchen. If the trickle gets any thinner, Christy slows. Maybe it's for the best. Just lie down on the floor and let the asthma attack kill her. Only then will she be able to see her... The Wi-Fi cupboard. A squeak fights its way out of her. She spins, trying to find the owner of the voice who spoke to her. But she's alone. Of course she's alone. Fern named the cupboard containing the internet router one day at breakfast. Amora was freaking out, already late for work, looking for her purse. Everyone searched the house except little Fern. When they returned to the kitchen, she pointed at the far cupboard and said, I think you put it in the Wi-Fi cupboard, Mommy. And there was Amora's purse. The name stuck afterward and was usually the culprit of many lost items. Christy stumbles to the cupboard now, flings the door open, and there it is. Her inhaler rests on the first shelf. She doesn't remember putting it there, but this little tidbit doesn't matter. She snatches the thing up, yanks the mouthpiece cover off, and takes a quick puff. It only takes seconds for the medication to work its magic, though it feels like hours. She leans against the counter, head lowered, trying to breathe. Once she gets her first strong inhale, she sucks down two more puffs from the inhaler. Eventually, she's able to breathe just fine again. Regardless, she continues to lean against the counter. An attack takes a lot out of a person and she needs some time to gather some strength. Just breathe, the voice from before whispers. Christy glances around, but she's alone. I'm going crazy, she mutters to herself and walks to the fridge. She brings a bottled water out and drinks half of it before placing it back in the fridge. She's walking across the kitchen, inhaler in hand, bound for the living room when a bright flash stops her. Not outside, but inside her mind. An old ghost bursting out of the dirt. The sharp flash of high-beam headlights. A buried memory? Perhaps. Christy shakes it off and hurries to the living room. Sleep. She needs sleep. The past is getting to her too much tonight. She almost takes a couple shots of whiskey. Almost. 
It helps when the memories grow too strong. Instead, though, she plops onto the couch, pulls the blanket up, and settles in. Before long, she falls asleep listening to the thud-thump of her heart. She's brewing coffee the following morning when the yard is a mess. Christy freezes while pouring the coffee into her cup. Before it overflows, she places the pot back on the burner and shakes her head. The voice. She must be imagining it. A dull ache thumps through her temples. She tries ignoring this and takes a sip of coffee. It's hot and good. The warmth spreads through her, igniting a small fire within. The yard is a mess. She wanders to the sliding glass door to the porch, sipping her coffee. She stares at all the leaves in her backyard. It's going to take all day to get it cleaned up. Maybe two. Might have been close to done if not for the... the skeleton under the porch. I should call someone, she says to herself and sips her coffee. Yes, she should, and yet doesn't do so. Instead, as she does every morning, she drinks coffee and goes upstairs, wishing each empty room a good morning. She's on her third cup when, I know what you did. Christy, cups to her lips, jumps at the voice, spilling coffee down the front of her. Fuck, she says, slams the cup onto the counter and strips her shirt off. She spins, looking for someone who isn't there. But maybe there is? What if someone is hiding out in the house? What if they're messing with her? like some vile prank. She fills the sink with water and some dish soap to let the shirt soak in. From the laundry room, she slips into a clean shirt and storms around the house. Who's there? She calls. I know you're here. After an hour, however, there is no one else in the house except her. I'm losing it, she mutters pacing back and forth in front of the sliding glass door. I can't do this. I can't live out here by my... You can and you will. Christy skids to a stop. She whirls, heart whip-cracking. No one is in the kitchen, no one in the house. I'm going crazy. She gasps trying to look everywhere at once. An icy chill slithers through her hair and along the nape of her neck. A scream rips out of her. She stumbles away from the glass door, bumps into the counter. The thumping in her temples turns to bashing, iron hammers crashing through her skull. The pain is enough to blur her vision. Having a stroke, she says. I'm having a... And just like that, the pain evaporates. It leaks away, leaving her slumped against the far counter under the Wi-Fi cupboard. Every nerve jitters, every muscle so tense, they might as well be rocks under her skin. Not sure what to think or do, she leans there against the counter breathing in shuddery gasps. Eventually, everything eases. Her heart, breathing, nerves, all of it. Finally, she feels closer to normal. She snorts. <laughs> Too much coffee, that's all. Christy dumps the rest of the pot down the drain, slips on shoes and heads outside. The day is warm for the middle of autumn, Nothing like the humid, brutal hell of August, thank God, but warm enough not to worry about a jacket. The rake is where she left it yesterday, when she discovered the skeleton. On the ground, not far from the porch, 
When she bends to pick it up, she purposely doesn't look under the porch. Not going down that rabbit hole again. Soon, she's raking away, humming a made-up tune under her breath. Without a care in the world, the sun is bright, the air easy to breathe. Christy rakes, bags, and moves on until more than half the backyard is clean. Once it's all bagged and done, she intends on inviting her sister over for a few beers and a bonfire. Not that Liz will come, but Christy feels she needs to at least try. She misses Liz so much, and wishes the woman would see how much Christy needs her right now. It's a fingers-crossed situation. It's around four o'clock when she calls it quits and lumbers toward the porch. Why did you do it? Christy pauses, shakes her head. Huh? Why did you do it? For a couple minutes, she doesn't know how to respond, or, if even, she's really being asked the question. She sways a bit, wanting to go back in the house, and yet, unable to, the world is fringed with dull colors. She manages a step toward the porch. I love you. And the voice... Now she recognizes it. Now, after so many hours. Now. Uh, Amora? The voice doesn't confirm or deny anything. Rather, it shades itself in ambiguity. Something she's not sure if she wants to accept or reject. A stroke is always possible. She's forty, after all. Like a heart attack, strokes came whenever. Fat, thin, lazy, or athletic. Sometimes death sends the call out early. Because, as Christy knows, death is an asshole. You need to let us go, the Amora voice says. I shake my head. You're not her. Who are you? The weird voice doesn't reply. Instead, Christy drops the rake and ventures closer to the porch. She needs to get into the house. Needs a drink. Anything. There are too many ghosts outside trying to invade the real world. Too much pressure. Too much. We can't leave until you let us go. The voice, sounding too much like Amora's for comfort, says. Christy screams. She paces back and forth in front of the porch. How? Huh? How am I supposed to let you go? The voice gives no reply. A frigid breeze plays with her hair. She turns to the porch just when the breeze dies. Clacking sounds draw her attention. Something white moves under the porch. Something far back in the gloom. Too far to really see in the gathering shadows of evening. Heart ratcheting, she hurries for the steps. It's the hiss that stops her. She skids in the grass, loses her balance, and drops hard on her butt. Pain laces up the small of her back. Breathing in gasps, she goes to stand when the clacking noises grow louder. Louder still. So loud she can't hear anything else but the clacking. A maddening sound beating into her brain. She claps hands over her ears and screams. The clacking stops. Or she thinks it stops. Gradually, Christy lowers her hands and relief spills through her like gentle, warm water. The noise is gone, leaving only the tinkling of wind chimes out front. A chuckle crawls up her throat and out her mouth. The chuckle soon morphs into barking laughter. 
tears trickle from the corners of her eyes down her cheeks from laughing so hard. Which doesn't make sense to her even while she laughs. Why? Nothing funny is going on. On the contrary, it... It crawls out from under the porch, ghost-white, bones clacking. Green flecks glow deep within the dark eye sockets. Its lower jaw snaps sporadically. A chattering of teeth. Oh, God, Christy whispers, too terrified to move. A bony hand latches onto her right ankle, pulls itself closer to her. It reaches with its other hand. She shrieks, kicks at the skeleton. Misses. The grip around her ankle might as well be an ever-tightening vice or crushing boa constrictor. Christy tries to kick it off her, but it's no use. She screams, tries to struggle enough for it to release her. Another hiss blows into her. The skeleton's teeth chatter. Bones clack as it pulls itself on top of her. It shouldn't weigh anything, really, but it does. Like a damn heavy block of ice sliding over her. It holds her down without even holding her down. Some strange force. Bony fingers cut into her stomach. She wails, bucking and thrashing. All for nothing. It has her. A sigh slithers out while it crawls up her. The pain from its sharp fingers digging grooves into her skin is beyond maddening. She tries once more to escape. Doesn't work. Even punching the skull is useless. Green slime flies from its chattering jaws and spatters onto her face. The stink is horrid. A putrid reek. Like when Amora would set chicken liver out in the sun to spoil for catfishing. That rotten, nasty stench. The skeleton clatters, and before Christy can blink, it's staring an inch or so from her face. The green flecks in its eye sockets flare. It's all your fault, the skeleton says without moving its jaw. You did this. Christy fights its hold, though to no avail. She's pinned to the ground. Stop! Let me go! A raspy chuckle filters through its grinning jaws. The rancid green slime oozes from between its moldy teeth. A rough, cold hand strokes Christie's cheek. It's your turn now. Join us, Chris. Join us. No! God damn it, let me go! We can all be together again. All you have to do is... Get off me! Get off! Let us go. Its mouth opens wide, splashing green slime onto her face. Christy gags, rolls onto her side, and spurts vomit onto the grass. She curls into a loose U-shape, body consumed. It shivers. So cold. Too cold. So. She blinks. Frowns. The weight on her is gone. Was it ever there? She sits and glances around. Nothing under the porch is visible. Too late in the evening. But the skeleton isn't on top of her. No rancid green slime. Had it all been some weird dream? Let us go. She stands on trembling legs, though manages to make it to the steps. Bright flashes strobe through her mind. Flashes she fights to ignore. Not by choice, really. But she needs to get inside the house. She needs to shut down for the night. Needs to. 
memories are ghosts. Everyone is haunted. A stutter in time and Christy blinks against a sunny day. First day of spring. Snow is melting and she's on her knees. The stench of bleach in her nostrils. Her hands are getting blisters and all she knows is she can't stop. She needs to keep cleaning. Another flash cuts through everything and... Amora is mad. She's storming the kitchen and yelling. She's spouting things like divorce and child support, screaming, liar and cheater. Christy stumbles up the steps and onto the porch. She falls to her knees, crawls towards the sliding glass door, reaches, but... Temples throbbing. She rolls onto her back. She coughs. It's raspy and thick with mucus. Slowly, she realizes she's been sleeping outside all night. Her entire right side ached. Must have been lying on it for hours. Hours? No, it can't be. There's no way she slept outside the entire night. Never in her life has she done such a thing. And yet, here she is. The wooden planks groan under her when she sits and, eventually, stands. It takes a few moments before she can stand on her own without using the porch railing as a crutch. Her hand grips the latch of the sliding glass door. Another flash of memory claws its way out the oily dirt of her mind. Orange jack-o'-lantern leaf bags. A full box of them. The very same ones she has sitting in the backyard right now. Clacking from under the porch. Bones shifting, bones moving, bones. The clacking changes with the breeze. Not clacking, but... Rustling. Flapping. The sounds of... Christy sucks in a sharp breath as if slapped. Her head thumps with a dull ache. Gaze lowering to the porch floor. Too dark out to see. Too dark. The rustling and flapping stops when the breeze dies away, leaving her shuffling toward the sliding glass door. She grips the handle to pull it open and freezes. Her eyes widen. Through the glass, her family sits at the kitchen table, eating supper. They're not laughing, not even smiling. Amora appears drained. Dark crescents hang under each green eye. She looks older than her 36 years. On their plates is Christie's favorite meal, lasagna. Only Fern and Connor are eating. Amora merely picks at the cheese with her fork. Christie blinks. A gray wave crashes into her, shoving into. It's the first real rain of autumn, a downpour. We should pull over for a bit, hun, Amora says. Christy smiles. We'll be okay, almost home. She squints through all the water pounding against the windshield. So much rain the wipers can't keep up. It'll let up soon. Mommy! Fern shouts. Connor ate my candy. Did not! Connor shouts back. Fern! Amora says in her soothing voice. We don't shout in the car, remember? Connor, eat your own candy. But she! Connor grumbles and sighs. Fine! Sorry, Mommy! Fern says. Christy shakes her head. God, she loves them all so much. Hard to believe. Just earlier today, Amora accused Christy of cheating. But really, it was all just miscommunication and a rotten ex-friend. Amora places a hand on Christy's thigh. The warmth of her touch still gets Christy's heart galloping. She takes Amora's hand in her own, shooting her wife a smile. 
the love of her life smiles back. Bright light flashes across the windshield. Christy snaps her attention back to the road a second before the huge truck crashes into their car. Brilliant white light consumes everything. Muffled sounds like being underwater. For an unknown length of time, Christy knows nothing at all. When she does, it's all unbearable agony and cold. People are shouting. Someone's crying. Her eyes manage to open a bit, and she's staring up into the rain. Oh, Chris, Amora says close to her ear. Don't leave me. Help is coming, baby. Hold on. Hold on. The gray wave recedes, leaving Christy gaping at her beautiful family through the glass door. It all clicks together. She didn't see them before because she hadn't confronted the facts yet. The skeleton under the porch is death. For a moment, Amora looks up from her lasagna and gazes at the glass door. Christy places a hand on the glass. There is resistance, though very little in her hand begins to sink into it. The breeze picks up once more, trying to draw her with it this time. There are whispers and gentle words. Amora's eyes widen. She can see me, Christy manages, and blows her love a quick kiss. Tears stream down Amora's face. Just before the breeze takes Christy, like soft petals in the wind, Amora blows a kiss in return. That was Lucas Peterson's Under the Porch as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That's why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall, or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you, Josie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now... Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up, or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts and trickle terror into the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we probe the dark places of your mind with more Tales to Terrify.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.